I always tell entrepreneurs there's three kind of circles that help you figure out your, your idea. The one is you have a curiosity in your own life. Like this is a thing that either bothers me, it enchants me, whatever. Second is there's actually a need. People are going, I need this, I need this, I need this. Third is it's really missing from the marketplace. So I went to Amazon, typed in the word finish, and the only thing you get were uh, like dishwasher detergent. And so I realized we as a culture over-celebrate the beginning and ignore the middle and the end. Welcome back to another edition of the Started Up Podcast, a member of the Education Podcast Network. Going to start this year off right by featuring author John Acuff. He is the author of several books, but most notoriously was Start, and how appropriate it is for our first guest in 2018 to be also the author of Finish. And in this episode, we talk about not just setting goals, because everybody sets goals, and this is why I loved that this is our first broadcast of 2018. Everybody can set goals. It's how to finish them. And John is uniquely qualified to this because he has written several books. Um, but this last one, he has a research-based approach to how people finish goals. And the unusual thing is, is that he is a guy that has done a lot of research and he's really entertaining. I cannot emphasize how much I enjoyed this and how much I enjoyed the book because sometimes I read books that are, you know, research focused and they are, well, they read like research. John's book uh, takes a approach that of using a lot of stories and humor. And I think that you're going to love his book. And I think that you're going to love this podcast. Matter of fact, at the end of the podcast, um, he was nice enough to give his contact information away. And also that if you go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash start ed up. And if you follow the page or you like the page, and then you leave a comment, you'll be in the drawing. John gave me three signed copies to give away. And I'm excited about that because I know that you're going to love this book. And if you don't win the book, I highly recommend you go on Amazon and buy it. I'm telling you, this is such a fun, practical read. And what better time to talk about goals than, you know, right at the beginning of January. So dig in, take some notes, and enjoy this one. The one and the only, John Acuff. All right, joining me now is John Acuff, author of the new book, Finish. John, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, let's get right into it. So you've written a book that's pretty interesting in the sense that, you know, I work with a lot of students that come up with really big ideas and everybody's got this really big idea, but it seems like the hardest part is, well, finishing. Seeing that you wrote your book about it. Matter of fact, one of my favorite quotes from the book is, I've read more books about um, setting goals than I've actually completed my goals. And I love that. But, you know, in looking over this, it seems just to be a kind of a, uh, an awakening of sorts and that some of the things that you've looked into on how you get things going or better yet, how you get things finished. So um, take me back to the origins of when you wanted to write this book. Well, I mean, the, the honest truth is I wrote this book uh, called Start a few years ago. And I had a lot of people say to me like, hey, I really like your book Start. It was helpful. No offense, though, I've never had a problem starting. I've started a thousand things. How do I actually finish? And I, I didn't have an answer for them. Um, and I looked at my own life and realized, wow, there's a lot of incomplete things, whether that's exercise programs I started but didn't do, books I bought but didn't read, business URLs. Like if you're an entrepreneur, you have 50 URLs right now. Because like the second you have an idea, you're like, got to get it before some Russian teenager. And so 
I always tell entrepreneurs there's three kind of circles that help you figure out your, your idea. The one is you have a curiosity in your own life. Like this is a thing that either bothers me, it enchants me, whatever. Second is there's actually a need. People are going, I need this, I need this, I need this. Third is it's really missing from the marketplace. So I went to Amazon, typed in the word finish, and the only thing you get were uh, like dishwasher detergent. And so I realized we as a culture over-celebrate the beginning and ignore the middle and the end. So we have launch parties. We have kickoff parties. I've never been to a middle party. I've never had somebody say like, hey, we're in the worst part. Here's some cake. And so that was two years ago. And the key for me was I took it beyond narrative bias. Most gurus online selling stuff right now are based in narrative bias. And narrative bias is this one thing happened to me, buy my stuff and it'll happen to you. And there's no research. If you say, well, where's your research? They go, well, there's a guy in Ohio who I taught to do this. And you go, that's just one anecdote about one human. And so I commissioned a research study with the University of Memphis with a PhD named Mike Peasley. And we studied nearly 900 people for six months as they worked on their goal because I wanted to create a book that was laugh out loud funny. Um, you know, I love people will tweet me and say, hey, you can't read this book in bed because you wake up your spouse. So I wanted to be really funny and interesting, but also based in real research that I could walk into a Microsoft, walk into a Comedy Central or Viacom and say, here's what I know data wise. Let's change some things. So that's kind of the origin. Yeah, I actually loved uh, how that you you did. You you kind of didn't just make this anecdotal. You put in some research, uh, entertainingly researched, mind you. Um, but it just reminded me so much of the class of you know when they just had some of these insights and they like, hey, we have this big idea, and then kind of getting stuck. And you know, one of the things that I do, ironically, is I have them write smart goals. Which you kind of, I'm not going to say you put down smart goals, but you, and, and you have your reasons, but you kind of go into the reasons why maybe smart goals don't necessarily work. And you have all these tips and strategies on some of the things you might do other than smart goals, correct? But in my defense, that if, like, the, the note about smart goals, so one of the things we studied, we basically said we're going to take commonly thought things about goals and test them to see if they're true. And if they're not, to find out what's true. So it's a common unsaid belief in our country that for something to be worthy or count, it has to be difficult and miserable. I mean, so many people that go, I'm going to get in shape. I go, how? They go, I'm going to run. I go, oh, do you like running? They go, no, I hate it. That's how I know it's good for me. Like when you say to the average student, average entrepreneur, name five words you think of when you think of goals. They say discipline, willpower, hustle, grind, persistence. A woman yesterday, I asked her that. She said, sacrifice. We never say joy, laughter, happiness, smiling. And so my point about smart goals, I love all the words, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time-bound. They're great words. Just show me the one that's even remotely related to enjoyment. There's not one. What, time-bound? Like, how was your vacation? It was amazing. It was time-bound. I knew when it was going to end. So that particular idea was around the idea of, can we test and prove that making what you do fun matters? Not having fun. Like, I think that other teachers, other people, other leaders have given the generation you're teaching a bad lesson in you should find your whole purpose in a job. Your whole passion should be met every hour of every freaking day. And then the minute it's not, you better jump to another job. And so I'm not saying have fun. Have fun is go to a water slide park. Well, I'm saying make it fun, which takes you being deliberate to go. Budgeting season sucks. Like I know very few people that are like, I love budget season. 
you know it's going to suck. Find ways to add some enjoyment to that difficult thing. That's where I feel like smart goals is a good starter, but it's not the full conversation. Yeah, it's one of the unique insights I liked about that chapter. Uh, if you want it done, make it fun in the sense that, you know, I, we have this environment where we kind of enjoy, you know, what are the cliche terms, the hustle, the grind and all these other things. And, and I take pride that my students are strategic and that they set these smart goals and that they fill out a calendar and they are so, you know, willing to do the, the finite details. But, you know, it was kind of an interesting take that you're like, hey, look, if you don't fundamentally love it, then it's not going to get done. And I echo the sentiments because the number one thing that we're told at the end of, you know, I have them grade me at the end of every year, basically, and I have them reflect on the year. But what every former student has said again and again is make sure your students take time to find out what they love. And if they don't identify what they love, that, that's okay. Give it time because that is the most important thing that you can do with this class. Find what you love. I'm going to have more, like what we found were people who were deliberate about fun were 46% more successful. So yeah. I'm not like, you know, for me, I go into a company and they say, we're a serious company. We do medical stuff. We're not Google. We don't have a water slide in our, in our lobby or give free cotton candy Fridays. And I go, that's great. You don't have to make a fun thing to make what you do. Yeah. Yeah, I will say there's kind of a unique um, balance there. I mean, uh, too oftentimes I've seen people say, well, like, oh, if I'm not passionate about it, then I'm quitting. Or um, people wishy-washy through a lot of things. So I, I definitely get the perseverance side. And matter of fact, when, when I do say kids today, oh my gosh, I, I think, you know, this is everybody. This is a lot of adults I know uh, for sure. You kind of go into that when, what, what is it called? Choose what to bomb. Uh, kind of some practical strategies on how to eliminate things that are, you know, not necessarily in your passion field, but at the same time, not being too wishy-washy and abandoning things too quick. Yeah. So the problem is most of us add new goals without removing old things. And so we just add, 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 add. Um, a great example of that is every retail organization in the country should meet in November and decide what things they won't worry about in December until January, but they don't. So they act almost like December is the same as March. And so they pretend like, Oh, it's not, it's not different. Like it's different. You should deliberately pause three things. So from a student's perspective on a simple level, if it's finals week, the week before finals, two weeks before finals, whatever you should say, Hey, here's three things that normally I care about. I'm not caring about them until the day after finals. And I'm going to be okay with that. Like I might like to exercise. I might not get as much exercise and that's okay. I might not like to connect with my friends. I might not get as much connection time with my friends and that's okay. It's not forever. It's me saying there's this new giant thing in my atmosphere. I have to acknowledge that. Or you could say on a broader level, when it comes to picking out college and figuring things out, I'm going to choose to bomb the conversations where a 45 year old asks me, what's your plan? Because no 45 year old knew at 18 what they were going to do at 45. Like we talked about Bitcoin today. Nobody our age could have studied cryptocurrency in college because it didn't exist. So the idea that we say to an 18-year-old, like, you got to have a plan, or a 19-year-old, you got to have a plan, just isn't realistic or honest. So you can, you can ignore and, and bomb big things like worrying about what your dad's partner or business whatever feels about your plans. You can ignore minor things like, okay, during this week, I don't deal with Netflix. I'm choosing to bomb Netflix or I don't deal like I've got three, you know who your drama friends are, who are going to suck you down like a text vortex. 
And so you can say, you know what? During finals week, I'm bombing this. Like right after finals, I go, dude, sorry, I've been in a cave. What's been going on? Like I'll pick right back up, but I can't do it all in a season that's different than other seasons. Yeah, I love that. Uh, And also like the fact that, you know, these crucial conversations you're kind of talking about are, are so nice, especially in my class, because when we have these out loud conversations, we start, you know, hopefully finding these patterns of why, why do you keep adding on to the things? Why aren't you going to eliminate things? I think it's why I'm so a fan of, uh, you know, a culture of innovation and being able to kind of bounce ideas off of one another um, when you run into some rough spots. So Well, and I would even argue what's fascinating to me about that, and I didn't put this in the book because it just wasn't space. There's all these studies going back to 1933 with this um, scientist, Kurt Lewin, who um, studied what happens when you tell people you're going to do something the wrong way. So for instance, if I tell you I'm gonna run, I'm gonna run a marathon, you pre-congratulate me. You say, John, that's so great, good for you. I couldn't do that, you must be really disciplined. And my body releases the neurotransmitter dopamine and it's just enough for me to feel high and not do the thing. I'm less likely to do the goal if I tell you I'm gonna do this thing. So what you need to do, it's not you don't need community, it's I need to say to you, Hey, will you ask me once a week if I ran three times that week? Like, will you send me a text and say, hey, did I study for my finals? Did I do this thing? And what's fascinating, I haven't seen a study on this yet, but I guarantee there's a connection between that principle and social media. So when I tweet, I'm against this thing, people go, good for you, you're so brave, way to take a stand. And then I don't do a single thing in my own Yes. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, like, really glad. Because that's one of the things that, you know, I I have my students take to social media quite a bit. And it's that temptation of, hey, I'm starting this new project. That release of the excitement of the the 140, actually now 280. But this is the very, very reason why I have them do reflections and updates. Like every student is required to either have a YouTube channel, a blog, or a podcast. Because it fights that temptation of just making this blanket statement. Because what I'm trying to get them to do is make that blanket statement and people say, okay, what do you got? Like, what have you done this week? Because if they said, hey, I'm going to write this book. All right, where's chapter one? I'm going to make this song. Okay, fine. Let me hear the first couple of you know, courses, whatever. And it, like, they may be a little bit insecure with it, but that's the whole point of like publishing it out to the world instead of just saying you're going to do something in the world. That's been the huge, huge, big difference maker. You funny you mentioned YouTube. My 14 year old's got a YouTube channel now. She's a uh, life with Ellie, the letter L and E. And it's fascinating. Like, I think what you're doing with students is so awesome because like I, my, my kids, like if they don't want to do, if they don't want to be entrepreneurs when they grow up, I'm fine with that. Like I'm a okay with that. I don't think it's for everybody. I w- I think everybody on the planet should have a side hustle though. Like I don't care if you work a bank job for 40 hours a week. Like I think there's nobility in that. I hate when entrepreneurs shame like people who work at corporate jobs. I think the dumbest thing an entrepreneur does is say either build your own dream or you'll be hired to work for somebody else. You're trying to hire people. You just insulted every person who would work for your company. Like what an idiotic thing to say. So I don't care if my kid, if my daughter said, I want to be a stay-at-home mom. I go, that's awesome. I'm married to one. That's fantastic. But I would still want her to have that mindset of there's like gigantic pools of money and opportunity and ways to serve people all over the world, especially with the internet. I'm going to tap into that. It's only going to be 10 hours a week. It's only going to be like, I'm about to try to hire a customer service intern. I have this course that I teach online. 
Um, I just spent two days with this guy, Seth Godin, um, who kicked my butt about the customer service I provide. So I'm going to send an email out to my neighborhood on our next door neighbor app, which is kind of like a mini Facebook. And I'm going to say, Hey, I need, I need a customer service, uh, intern. I'll pay $10 an hour. It's 10 hours a week. This is what I want you to do. And then like, my hope is that there'll be some, whether it's a high school student or a stay at home mom that says, Oh, Hey, yeah, I, I love to do that. Let me, you know, like, that's great. Like, let me figure that out. So that's what I, I love that you're doing that class. Cause that's kind of how we live in our family. You know, again, here I go with, I'm so glad you said that, but I'm so glad you said that because that is one of the very things that um, sets this class apart. And one of the things we want them to do is, you know, take the class as a side hustle. Um, you know, I have always said that, you know, this is not a replacement for education. It's an enhancement. So sometimes my students go a little bit over the, the top because they fall in love with some of these projects. And I don't want that to happen. I want them to find that balance to still maintain their academics. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm at the same time, I'm trying to demonstrate it myself. Like, you know, I'm a family guy. I've got three kids. And yet, you know, I, I have this thing at night. You know, I do a podcast. I do, a, you know, various other things. But I'm trying to find that art of fitting and end my day and not necessarily going over the top. And, and with that being said, I'm also, you know, kind of scared. There's some media personalities out there that make you feel a little bit less than if you're not like you said, you know, doing that 15 hour day kind of, you know, mentality. I get yeah. it. It's a sales tool. Like I get that yeah. there's people that think they have to live on the extreme edges of life to cause connection or attention. And they say, you know, sleep when you're dead, work 20 hours a day. Like, like, yeah. you know, your parent, you can, you can see your kids when you're 15, like whatever. I don't like, I just, I've seen that story before. Like I know where it ends and it's not like, yeah, yeah. Not great. And I've never met a 13 year old that said, I didn't know my dad for the first 13 years, but I have a cool bike because he bought me a nice bike and it's all, it balances out. Like that's just the dumbest way to have such a kind of hollow life. Yeah. Amen to that. I uh, totally agree. Plus it's, it's kind of dangerous. I actually, even ironically, Gary Vee was talking about the fact that, you know, some of this entrepreneurial lifestyle and, and them pursuing these things is a, you know, a road to depression. There's a really high correlation between depression and suicides in the startup kind of realm. So I'm really, really, really careful about, you know, pushing that agenda too much. Again, seeking that balance um, between, you know, your personal life, your academic life and, and what you're trying to accomplish with your business slash, you know, projects. Well, that's why I like, you know, where, you know, it's funny to me is it's an ind indication of that is like, there's all these books about sleep right now. Like it's a new thing. Like I keep seeing like, at, Ariana Huffington did a book about the importance of sleep. And I was just like, don't we know that? Like, who right. is like, how are we just now being like, you know how your body is designed to need rest? Like if you do, it's better. <laughs> it's like, what? Like, right. And I don't well, say that. I think it was an important book for her to write. I think it, the funnier thing is we as a culture needed an expert to tell us like, hey, you know how like, you know how it's bad if you just like stay up all the time and you're like, you're essentially functionally drunk. Like it's better if you sleep. Well, yeah, because I mean, it seems like now the new normal is this hustle and grind mentality. And, and I'm not ripping on him because I love his work. But a couple of years ago, Casey Neistat had this really cool video out on his workflow and how much he well, didn't sleep. And and so a lot of my students looked at that and said, see, see, I mean, you can get by on three hours sleep if you're really driven and you want to hustle. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like his, 
his age starts with a three and yours starts with a one. So, you know, like don't emulate that. And at the same time, I'm like kind of proud that they want to work and they want to, you know, pursue their goals that much, but not in that way. You don't know the rest of his life. Like, and I don't know Casey and I didn't see that video. So I'm not, I don't mean like for that video particularly, but the problem with the internet, it's, it's a, it's a screenshot, not a full picture. And so you don't know, like maybe he has serious caffeine issues. Maybe, you know, the, the other entrepreneur you, you, you emulate is on his fourth divorce. Like those things matter. So I just think that I, I think I'm a believer in what I'd call a sprint week where there are times seasons where you sprint and you know what, dude, they are 70 hour weeks and I'm not opposed to that. And I get that. And you hit the deadline. Like, don't get me wrong. I just don't think you're meant to lead a sprint year. Um, so much. So it's like, but the other thing is we as entrepreneurs, we say extreme things. Like here's another one that always gets me. Like when a guy like Elon Musk goes, after I sold PayPal, I put all my money into, you know, Tesla or whatever. I just sleep on my friend's couches. He was essentially saying I was broke. That's him trying to say, I'm like you. Like successful people get really uncomfortable when they feel different from you. So, cause there's a gap. So they try to close the gap by going, I'm like you. He can make $100,000 per speech. At any moment, he could have called up any company, any conference and said, hey, I'll speak for 50 grand. And they would have said, we'd love that. So like a guy like him stopped being broke like 15 years ago. And that's not failure. What's dishonest is when we say, I'm just like you. I get it. Like, here's the, like, you, you're not just like me. And it's interesting. There's movie stars that do that where they go, they're really, really attractive in really good shape. And they go, I know what it's like to be body shamed. And you go, well, maybe like in the third grade, like, but like, you're just trying to use that as a way to manipulate a conversation. And so I just don't like the entrepreneur space is so full of that stuff that it's really frustrating to me. Yeah, that really resonates with me because, you know, it's easy for the people in the media to say, you know, oh, woe is me. And then, you know, the reality isn't that. And quite frankly, this is one of the battles that I'm doing because, you know, some of our parents are like, hey, you know, it's easy for Elon or it's easy for Gary or it's easy for James Altshire to say, you know, you have to take this risk, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, they've already made it. And, you know, we always kind of you know, are writing that line because I... I feel it's kind of one of my jobs to inform both our students and our parents about some of the careers that are absolutely going away. Matter of fact, did um, there was an article a couple of days ago from Mother Jones, really big article on like AI and automation and things like this. About I think the title article is like your job's going away and faster than you think, and and it's frightening because you know some of the things that you know we think that are still going to be around in five or ten years just aren't, and on that kind of like celebrity thing, it's easy for me to say, like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm reading the data on people that have accurately called the future for a while. And like, I'm wanting my students to be aware of these things. And at the same time, well, heck, even in, even my own house, you know, um, Alicia, my wife, you know, she's really uncomfortable with the fact that one of, you know, my, my oldest child might not go to college. We're not sure yet because some of the things she's interested in are on the entrepreneurial side and, and, you know, her opinion and kind of dad's as well, that if you want to be an entrepreneur, I like, I don't know if you need to spend a hundred thousand dollars in learning how in theory. And so like, you know, my wife's like, well, you know, the safety of that, you know, college degree is, is comforting. And I agree with her somewhat, but you know, the ROI of it now is, is tough. So, um, and, and heck, one of the reasons why I like your book and, and one of the reasons of the class is, you know, I want, 
I want content producers, not just consumers. Like, well, you gave me your daughter's story. I have to give you mine. Um, several years ago, uh, my oldest was like, hey, dad, I want my own laptop. And I said, why? She says, well, there's some YouTube channels that I really want to subscribe to. I don't want to have, you know, log in on your computer. And I said, I tell you what, if you create your own YouTube channel, I'll buy you a laptop. She's like, why is that? I'm like, because I, I, I don't want you to watch YouTube. I want you to also create. And so it was kind of an interesting journey in the sense that, um, one of the best things happened to her is she started doing, well, she's going to be mad at me, but she was doing these little pet shop like dramas, right? So she was doing these videos and the best thing in the world happened to her is that she was getting some negative comments. And I remember the one day, I mean, she was all of like maybe 10, 11 when she was doing these. And she's like, dad, look, and her feelings were kind of hurt. And I said, you know, Ave, click on that person who left the negative comment and see how many videos they've made. Well, you know what the answer was, zero. And so I said, are you, know, you going to take criticism from somebody that's never done a video? It's easy for them to say. And then a couple of like comments were like, you know, hey, your lighting is bad. And I'm like, is your lighting bad? And he's like, yeah. yeah well, then what are you going to do about it? Maybe I should put a lamp up in front of the set. Okay, great. Problem solved. Because in her journey of being a content creator, it was a much better experience than her just being a watcher of YouTube videos. Now, mind you, she could have given me a list of excuses on why she didn't want to start her YouTube channel or the fact that, you know, dad just wouldn't give in and buy one. But, um, well, actually, you you write about it in, in the book about being able to kind of take away some of your excuses ahead of time and why you should be cognizant of that and, and start to do that on your own. Could you go into that a little bit? Yeah, so a noble obstacle um, is something you throw up that makes you look good but also prevents you from having to do the thing. So the, the big example in the book is a friend of mine whose wife went in to clean the garage and he said, totally, I'll have a yard sale. And the difference between throwing stuff away and holding a yard sale, there's like 17 steps different. And it's a great obstacle. Um, another obstacle that I mentioned, a woman said, hey, I want to write a blog, but I'm afraid people steal my ideas. So I need to get a copyright lawyer first. And that sounds like good for her being protecting her idea, like being careful but she'll never blog because like getting a copyright lawyer that you can afford is not an easy, like that's, that's difficult. And so a noble obstacle, um, the worst ones are when people have an idea they want to pursue and they blame their family for not doing it where they say, I would become an entrepreneur, but I don't want to become a workaholic. Um, I need to spend more time with my family and you're throwing your kids and your wife or your husband under the bus. So you're secretly saying it's their fault. I'm not doing this. I would do this. I would do this tomorrow but they don't want me to where a spouse in a healthy relationship would go, no, like if you have a passion, go explore it. Like, and PS, your kids aren't up at 4am every day. Like you can't tell me as a, even if you have a full-time job, when I wanted to write my first book, I got up at 5am because I had two kids under the age of three, a beautiful wife, a lot of commitments. I couldn't say, well, I'd write a book if I had more time. I had the time. It was just, would I do the effort? So a noble obstacle is, it's kind of a win-win. I mean, it's really, it's really a lose-lose, but the win-win is you don't have to do work and you look noble or humble. I'm sacrificing for my family or, you know, I've got this other thing I'm trying to do first, just as soon as this happens. Like, here's my favorite one recently. I did a podcast and this lady said, oh my gosh. She said, we have all this baby stuff. We've decided we've, we've had a couple kids. We're not going to have any more kids. And we have tons of baby stuff. And we're like, we got to get rid of this baby stuff. And they're like, but we don't want to just like throw it away. That'd be wasteful. We want to give it to somebody. And they're like, but we don't want to just give it to somebody like a goodwill. 
we want to give it to like an international family that's migrated here. Um, and we'll meet with them like quarterly and give them more because we don't overwhelm them. And so like her and her husband realized we just made a condition of cleaning out this room. We didn't have to find an immigrant family that we trust that we meet with quarterly and have pretty, a pretty significant relationship with. And you go like goodwill would take an hour, dude, and would still help people. That's a great example of putting up a noble obstacle between you. I mean, and I think a teenager would say, well, I have this thing I want to do, but I really want to help my friend with this other thing. And you go, that's great that you're helping your friend. But eventually, like, if you're going to be an innovator and entrepreneur, you have to do some of your own stuff. No, I totally get that. And the funny thing is, is as I'm listening to this, it, I'm kind of laughing. But in a lot of ways, like in the moment, you don't realize how ridiculous you sound. Because I, I, it's probably just human nature that you put up these, you know, these confirmation biases. Matter of fact, it's it's been so interesting to see the political spectrum here lately on, you know, the thing, some of the things that people are outraged by. Well, when their candidate did it, well, it didn't matter. You know, now that this guy or this girl's into office, no matter who it is, I mean, literally on both sides, both sides are guilty. But, you know, when you bring up the fact like, wait, four years ago, you weren't upset when your girl did this or your president did that. And their comeback is, well, yeah, but still. And, and I'm like, uh, do you understand your own confirmation biases there? It's just, it's, it's funny and it's kind of, it's weird. Like regardless of which side you're on, I love that there's people now that are like, I, I hate that they blame Trump for everything. And then I want to say, well, remember there was eight years of like essentially, thanks Obama. Like the idea, like yeah, we, yeah. every party blames the other party for things unrelated where they go, yeah, but like, yeah, but. And it, it's always the, my thing is when people who haven't won, um, haven't won the upper echelon of their sport then say their opinion on visiting the White House. Like they go, you know what? I would like Gary Payton, you didn't win a championship. Like, no, who cares? That'd be like me going like, you know what? I wouldn't date Kathy Ireland. I just, I wouldn't. Like if she had asked me when I was like in the 10th grade and she was a super model, like I probably would have been like, you know what, Kathy, you're too old. I just, I have principles. Like that is insanity. But the news cycle, like whether it, you know, our, our news cycle and not even just news, like our celebrity culture, the way, you know, the way we idolize people, um, you know, our rappers, like it's, it makes me feel like an old man at times. Cause I like, I end up going like, where are their parents? For me, like I heard a brilliant um, African-American sheriff. Um, he was from Dallas and he, uh, he, they asked him like, how did you make it? Like became this really prominent figure in that city, wrote a book, like really celebrated by both sides of the fence. How did you do it? And how did your brother die of crap? Like, cause they were raised in the same family and he had a couple of things. But one of the things he said was I grew up during pot. My brother grew up during crack. And he said that impacted how we were raised. And so I extrapolate that and go, I fear for kids growing up in an opiate generation because it's going to, it, wow. it does something different. So when I see a 17 year old rapper, like a uh, little pump and he's covered in bottles of codeine and he's 17 and he's telling your students Hey, syrup, opiates, Xanax, like this is the thing like that. I am by no means obviously advocating marijuana, but we as parents have to say, okay, like the consequences have multiplied exponentially. Like yeah. this is really scary. And so I, that's where I as a parent go, oh, or as a leader, entrepreneur, whatever, I go, oh my gosh, like we got to get 
students and things that matter more than that. I love that. One of the other things I really wanted you to bring up was uh, the idea of these secret rules. Could you explain a little of that? Yeah. So that one, um, and there's a couple of people talk about it different ways. They say a limiting belief, um, kind of a, a, a false ceiling. So a, a secret rule is a rule you live by that you don't even know exists. And the, the reality is most of those rules are picked up at the ages you're speaking into. So um, students are impacted at that age where a teacher says to them, hey, you're not a good athlete. Or they make this big sweeping statement like you're not athletic, which if you're a sensitive you know, kids are malleable at that age. And if you take that as I'm not this thing and I'll never be this thing, go or like you're not a good public speaker. And then guess what? At 27 at a company where they go, you've got great ideas. You're great at leading meetings. We'd love you to speak at the national sales conference. You go, I'm not a good public speaker. And you have this rule or, or success in the South, especially where I live. The South has a weird relationship with money where there's a shame or a guilt about it, about success. And so I had a friend say, man, that CEO makes $20 million a year. How do you think he sleeps at night? And I wanted to say like probably on like sheets of Hungarian down, like probably very well. But in his mind, there was a certain amount of money that was okay. And then when you cross that, it became you were arrogant, you were greedy, you were whatever. So as soon as he would get close to winning, he would kind of self-sabotage and sink his own boat because he was afraid of the success. He had a secret rule. Um, he felt like he's not popular. And so he would not take opportunities. Like there's all these rules we add to our lives that you go, but that, that can't be true. Like here's, here's another one. Um, a secret rule of it's better to not try and not know if I couldn't do it than to try and find out. So I know a girl who owns a really nice violin and she's played it three times because if she doesn't play it, she can't verify she's not good automatically. So she keeps it in her house for someday, maybe I'll do that versus actually finding out. And I think that's part of your job as a teacher is to expose those and to give them the right rules of you can do anything. There's all this possibility. Here's who you are. That, I mean, I think that's a huge part of what a teacher does. I, I appreciate you saying that. One of the other things though, that you threw in there is like having and being aware of your own data points. And, and sometimes I feel like that's one of my jobs as well as a teacher is like, to remind them what they've done or what they haven't done sometimes, like I said earlier in the podcast of, of them like self-reflecting and, and putting it and making and publishing it. But um, explain a little bit about the data points and, and why should people, you know, put an importance on this? Yeah. So the, the point I was trying to make is that data kills denial, which prevents disaster. Um, I meet so many people that will say, you know, um, it's the results aren't happening fast enough. And I'll say, well, show me, show me the 10 actions you've done lately. And they'll go, I don't keep a list. And I'll go, well, that like, I have no idea. Like if you went to the gym and said, I want to get in shape, the trainer would go, can you give me a food diary for the lat for the next week? And if you said no, then he would say, then you're not serious about it. You won't collect data. So when somebody says to me, I'm really busy, I go, well, where's your time going? They don't know, you know? So that's what I mean. Like if you can get some simple points of data that tell you the truth, they're great because they're not emotional. Data is just data. So like, for instance, everyone who's ever launched a product online has had that crushing first day where you thought sales would be here and then they're really here. Like my daughter in her YouTube channel, she said, dad, 
a hundred people saw my mention of joining my YouTube channel or subscribing on my Instagram and only one did. And I was like, welcome to social media. Like you think it's going to be like 10 people saw it. 10 people did it, dude. That is never. So like what a gift for her to know next time that, okay, I have a 1% conversion rate. I want to double it. I want to get to two, but the next time she does it, she won't come to me and go, uh, 99 people didn't because she already knows the data yeah. goes hey hey don't forget this is a failure this is the, the curve and we're going to increase it yeah. but you're not a failure there's this great book called black box uh thinking about why do some people recover from failure um it's by matthew saeed and in it he says he does this great difference between sometimes like doctors versus pilots when an airline crashes there is an amazing massive they pull out the black box. They undo everything. They like they investigate it. There's a huge thing. He said sometimes there's issues with doctors because there's not that same accountability or visibility. Um, the system is created to encourage people not to be that upfront. Where they, you know, have you read uh, Ray Dalio's Principles book? Um, no, I'm in the middle of it, and one of the best things he says is that essentially, and I'm going to misquote it: when somebody disagrees with him, he finds that person and goes to make sure they're not right. And he doesn't do it to prove them wrong. He goes, maybe they, don't, they know something. I don't know. They say this thing isn't what I think it is. So I'm going to bring it to them and have them tell me why. And then I'll go, oh, you're right. Like, woohoo, I missed that. Or go, actually, you're wrong. Here's why. So he seeks out, not conflict, that's the wrong word, but he seeks out um, disagreement. And he puts his idea through the ringer of that. Same, you know, same thing with data. Data tells you like, no, this is, you know, if you told me, um, I just, I'm against the, the leap of faith that a leap of faith doesn't mean being an idiot. Um, you know, to step out doesn't mean being an idiot to follow your dreams. Doesn't mean being an idiot. Like I always tell people, I love miracles. I just don't want your plan to need seven. You know, like I don't, I don't want you to have to meet Elon Musk for this to work. Like, I don't want you to have to get discovered. I don't want you to have to have Jake Paul post your video. Like, I don't want that. Like, I want you to have a plan. Yeah, it's one of the things I like about you talking about, you know, analyzing your own data or even being aware of the correct data. I remember, you know, when I was starting to just dip my toe into some Facebook marketing and I was doing some videos and I was getting the data back and it like my average view per video was like 20 seconds. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I have a two minute video out there. And my average view is 20 seconds. And then, and ironically enough, it, it was one of our 19 year old uh, marketing, you know, he's actually the VP of, of marketing. He's like 20 seconds, like Don, that's unicorn stuff. He's like, that's, that's really, really good. The average is normally between 10 and 12. And I was like, Oh, and suddenly I went from feeling down about how people weren't watching my video to, you know, realizing the data and going, Oh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm better than I thought. If you don't understand data, um, you like you would be in a really bad position if you scored your batting average in baseball against your free throw percentage in basketball. If you said to me, "Dude, I'm a terrible, you know, I'm a terrible baseball player. I only hit 400 percent. Like I don't get 90 percent." You go, "You are Ted Williams. You are yeah, amazing." Yeah, yeah. You know where like so like it's context, but without context, like. It's same with email open rates. You know, I have a 40% email open rate. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's an F if you judge it on the A, B, C, D. Yep, F, yep. So it's all relative. Yeah, I love that. Uh, just because the, the person that was batting 400, if they never 
if they never understood that they were well, actually if they did understand that 400 is a legend they'd probably start increasing you know their performance even more because they had the self confidence but conversely if they never knew that 40% open rate was was good then they'd probably continue to fall but you know let's be honest with each other this is the hard part like a lot of people don't want the data well, you know the ignorance is bliss mentality like hey if i figure out that you know, if I ask for feedback or if I ask for the data, I may not like it. You know, um, kind of like like your mention of playing golf in the dark. You you, you don't want to uh, know that you're you're bad, um, so you don't look for that information. And in the meantime, it's it's uh, kind of you know counterproductive. If if we sought to improve ourselves the whole time, then man, we'd be getting better immediately. Anyway, uh, John, I sincerely sincerely appreciate you being on the podcast. Um, but I also want to point people to your direction. So give us all the information on where they can find you and all the other things you have out there right now. Yeah. So it's acuff.me is my website. Um, I teach a 90 day finish course at finishcourse.com, um, which is video based and it's a great way to kind of amplify everything. And then Twitter, I'm just John Acuff, J-O-N-A-C-U-F-F. Um, and then Instagram, same thing. And uh, yeah, you can get the books uh, anywhere they're sold. I've got, I've written six, but if you, if you said to me, if I only read one, um, I would say finish. Um, I think it's the, it's the most well-researched and it's the funniest books. Yeah, I appreciate that, John. And honestly, what I really appreciate, and I hope I'm not putting you on spot, but uh, John has agreed to give us a couple signed copies of Finish. And what we decided to do is uh, if you go to our Facebook page, that is facebook.com slash start at up and uh, let us know that you'd listen to the show and or uh, give us a new review or and a star rating on iTunes. That will count as well. Uh, get that out to us and we'll see if you can win a copy. Thanks, man. Awesome. All right, John Acuff, thanks so much for being on the show. All right, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank John Acuff for being on the show. I want to also remind you that you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, just about anywhere podcasts are found. Also, love, love, love when you guys recommend us guests for future episodes. We're going to put a premium on focusing on classroom teachers, so those requests that are coming in are appreciated. Until then, this is Don Wetrick reminding you that opportunities are everywhere. We'll see ya.